Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. Welcome to Liquid Church. I'm Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're new, by the way, you are in a church. I know it seems like a circus. It actually is a church. Imagine that. But this is our new music series that we like to do to kind of kick off summer, Pop God, in which we kind of take a look at spiritual faith through the lens of popular music. And uh, you can just put your glow sticks away for just a minute. How many of you have heard the song Happy before on the radio? It's kind of all over the place. Yeah, kind of a summer song. It was produced, written, and performed by a guy named Pharrell Williams, who has been compared to uh, our own kind of Curtis Mayfield. Pretty high falsetto. It's this like neo-funk soul song written in the key of uh, F minor, and it was nominated, check this out, for Best Original Song at the Academy Awards, but it lost. It lost to, does anybody know? Let It Go from Frozen. (laughs) Aren't you glad we didn't do that, okay? Parents, let it go, all right? At the beginning uh, of this year, Happy spent 12 weeks Number one position on the Billboard charts. In fact, it's been number one in 22 countries from Ireland, Australia, France, Germany, all the way to the UK. kind of is this global tribute to the desire to be, well, happy. Now, what does that have to do with the Bible? Let me tell you how we kind of attack this. In Pop God, what we do is we take the universal longings that are behind the lyrics of some of today's hottest songs, and then we see how they compare with the truth of God's word. So we take pop music, pop, and then, we, and then we connect it to God. Pop, God. You see how that where you make the connection? And we've done this in the Old Testament, books like Hosea and Haggai, and they're called the minor prophets. So we look at the themes of these prophets and then connect it with popular music. So for this series, we're going to look at the Old Testament prophet known as Malachi. Can you say that? Malachi. Now, if you're Italian, we're in New Jersey. Any Italians here? Okay, you get to pronounce it Malachi, all right? This is, this is the Malachi, the Italian prophet from Lyndhurst, all right? You can open up to page 669, okay, in your Bible if you're using the one we gave you, or you can click in your phone to, to Malachi. Malachi actually is an Italian. He's Hebrew. And the name Malachi means my messenger. And that's what a prophet was in, in the Old Testament, a messenger from God. He had a word, a message for God's people the nation of Israel. Israel is just the old covenant church. And Malachi wrote this prophecy in the year 430 BC to Jewish people in Jerusalem. Now, this is the most unique book in the Bible. If you look at it, you see it's only a few pages long. It's four chapters, but it's unlike any other book in the Bible. Why? Because Malachi, if you see, it's the last book in the Old Testament. And then there's 400 years of silence before God opens his mouth again in the New Testament through the book of Matthew. So Malachi is kind of a bridge book. In other words, its message spans generations, and I think you'll see it's as relevant as ever to God's people today. There are four chapters, as I said, to Malachi, so we're going to take one each week, connect it to a song. Let's begin here, chapter 1 of Malachi, verse 1. It says this, A prophecy or message from God, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And here it is, okay? Big idea. Let's say the words in yellow together, all our campuses, one voice. Ready? I have loved you, says the Lord. And you can just pause right there because this is the heart of Malachi's message. What is God's primary message to his people? It's four words. 
I have loved you. Now, there's a happy thought, right? The God of the universe who creates the heavens and earth, he says, I actually have loved you personally. There is affection. How does God feel about you right now? He wants to pour out his favor, his blessing, his love on you. This is a happy thought, and this is a happy moment in the life of Israel. Why? Well, the Jews were happy for two reasons. For starters, they were back in Jerusalem. After decades in exile, they've been slaves in Babylon, and they finally returned to Jerusalem in Malachi's lifetime. They were replanted in the holy city, and they were happy. Second reason they were happy is because the temple had been rebuilt. At the center of Jerusalem, center of Jewish life was the temple, or church, where the people of God worshipped. And for centuries, the temple lay in ruins. It had been destroyed by Israel's enemies. But guess what? God said, I'm going to rebuild the temple. And in 516 BC, the temple was completed and a religious revival broke out under the prophet Ezra. People were happy. They were ecstatic. Woo, happy dance. Unfortunately, by the time Malachi gave this message, the thrill was gone. The temple had actually been rebuilt for about a century, 100 years. And somewhere along the line, they lost their enthusiasm for worship. They'd grown complacent apathetic, grown a little bit uh, cynical about church. I'm so glad, by the way, this is a problem in the ancient past, not in the modern world, right? Their fathers, the previous generation, painstakingly rebuilt the temple, but the next generation said, yeah, I'm not so sure about this whole church thing. So Malachi is kind of preaching to millennials. He's like, God's saying, I have loved you. And they were like, eh, really? But you ask, how? Have you loved us? You see that? You hear the cynicism in that? God says, I have loved you. And they're like, really? Prove it. How have you loved me, God? See, although God's message of of love and of hope hadn't changed over the centuries, the hearts of his people did. They'd become hardened to God's love. They'd been hardened, suspicious of his promises to bless them because they looked at their families and they looked at the culture around them. And guess what? In their culture, the government was totally corrupt. And the economy was teetering on the edge of another downturn. Again, ancient problem, not 21st century, right? And so the Israelites actually questioned God's love for them. Isn't that what we do when problems come crashing into our world, right? If we, as long as we're feeling, I'm happy, happy, I'm happy as long as I'm feeling blessed at my job or work or my relationship is going well, then I'm happy, woo! If things are good on the home front, I feel happy. But the moment a problem crashes into our world, a job falls through, a romance goes sour, or sickness or death even touch somebody that we love, I'm not happy anymore, and I blame you, God. (laughs) I'm holding you accountable. I thought you loved me, God. I have loved you. Really? How have you loved us? What have you done for me lately? See, this isn't just a Hebrew problem. This is a human problem. (laughs) Happiness in human terms is very fickle because we equate happiness with happenings. As long as things are going well, I'm happy. I feel connected to God. But the moment something happens I didn't expect or can't control or causes pain in my life, I'm not happy anymore. In my relationship with God, whatever. I'm not even sure God ever cared to begin with. Right? We think that. Well, if God loved me, then why would he let that thing happen at my job? I didn't get the promotion. I I didn't make the cut. If God really loved me, why would my marriage be under such stress? If God loved me, why would I have that thing with my kid? Or why do my kids struggle? If God really loved me, why are my finances so bad? I'm not happy. That's the problem. 
The pop or popular view of happiness is happiness is based on happenings, on your circumstances. And the truth is, if happiness is based on your happenings, sooner or later, you will get disappointed because life is full of heartache and pain and unexpected curveballs. But real happiness, what the Bible calls joy, is based on something much deeper and steadfast than happenings. Joy is based on the character of Christ, of God himself, who doesn't change like cultural fads or shifting shadows, but he has promised to love us with this constancy and faithfulness that actually allows our faith to rise in moments of struggle. Have you ever met people like that? They seem like super happy on the outside, but then something ha- hits them out of nowhere. You know, they get sick or, or experience a terrible tragedy. And you think, oh no, they are going to fall to pieces, but they don't. Instead, their faith seems to actually grow stronger because they lean into God and they double down on dependency on him. And instead of growing bitter, their struggle makes them better. <laughs> it actually makes them more humble, more meek, more dependent on God and surrendered to his plan for their life. He's like, it's actually about you, God. I'm sorry I forgot that. It makes them better, not bitter. That's a decision some of you are facing right now as you respond to the circumstances in your life. Is your happiness dependent on happenings or does your joy, is it drawn from something much deeper as you draw closer to God in a crisis, as you lean in and he renews you in his love and his mercy and his his affection? Unfortunately for Israel, Their cultural struggles didn't make them better. It made them bitter. And so they questioned their creator. They said, how have you loved us? And God replies, was not Esau Jacob's brother? This is verse 2, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we've been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may rebuild but I will demolish. Uh, They will be called a wicked land of people always under the wrath of God. And then he says, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. Now, don't get confused here. He's talking about Jacob and Esau. These are just two brothers. Their story is told in Genesis 25. And when he says, Esau, uh, I have hated, it just means that God chose Jacob, the brother of Esau, to be the nation through which he was going to bless the whole world. Jacob was a father of Israel. And though God said, I'm choosing you, Israel. I'm calling you my child. I'm going to care for you in a special way. They stiff-armed him. They rejected him, and they suffered for that. Esau founded the nation of Edom, okay? That is the number one enemy of Israel, the modern-day Palestinian people. And there's still tension in the Middle East in this day. There was unhappiness. But here's the rub. Not only were God's people unhappy, so was God. See, We think God's like unmoved or emotionless when we launch these accusations against him, when we feel distant or ignore him, but that's not true. The prophets make very clear that God actually has strong feelings. Did you know that? He's not some unmoved, unfeeling deity up in the sky, but rather he takes a relationship with his children very seriously. In verse 6, he says this, a son honors his father and a slave his master. Let's read this together. If I am a what? A Father, where's the honor due me? If I'm a master, where's the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It's you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Again, they're questioning God. By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? 
when you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering those to your governor or your boss. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? If you think God sounds ticked off, he is, <laughs> okay? Because he's like, Israel's my child, but it's like a spoiled child. You got, you, parents, you're like, I know this is what it is like. It's like, I want you to do this. Why do I have to do that? Because this reason. Why do I have to do it for that reason? They keep questioning you. And he's like, Israel's like spoiled children. You didn't give me what I want, God. I asked for a new job. I didn't get it. I asked for a bigger house. I asked for a new boyfriend. God, you didn't give me what I want. So I'm unhappy with you. Guess what? Daddy's unhappy with you. <laughs> Again, the story of the Bible is not God saying, I want to create an army of emotionless robots who obey what I say. God creates humans because he wants a relationship with children of love and emotion and grace and affection. That's what faith is. It's coming to know God as our heavenly father. God says that in verse 6. Underline this in your Bible. I am a father. That's who God is. God is your father. In other words, he created you. He named you. He chose you to be his child and to bear his image. I mean, and you know why he chose you? Not because you're great. <laughs> because he's great. That's his heart. He adopts you into his family. Think about adoption. We have a lot of families in our church who have adopted children who aren't their biological children, but they've adopted them into their family. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. It truly is. It's beautiful. But think about adoption for a minute. In adoption, who picks who? Do kids pick their father? <laughs> no, a father picks his child. He says, I want that one. I want you. I want her. She's going to be my little girl. He's going to be my beloved son. And that's exactly what God did with Israel. He said, I choose this nation. I want you to be my chosen people. I'm going to show my love to the whole world through our relationship of love together. It implies intimacy and warmness. He gives them a name. He gives them a land. I'm going to say, I'm going to give you a home he creates for them an incredible inheritance. And Malachi is like, so you guys are like the adopted child who's happy for a minute and then crawls up into their daddy's lap, and when they don't get what they want, slaps him in the face. And God's like, yeah, that insults me. That offends me. The moment something in your life doesn't go according to your agenda and you're not happy, you show contempt for my name. And they're like, how do we do that? And he's like, in worship. Whenever you come to church, you bring lame animals. In other words, lame worship. That's the specific charge in verse 6. You see that? Against the priests. They're the ones responsible for leading the people in worship. The problem was is they were just kind of going through the motions and phoning it in. Again, we would never do that today in worship, right? Their sacrifices were second rate. Instead, Because what happened is when they came to temple, Old Testament church, when they came to the temple, they had to bring a lamb, a spotless, firstborn, no blemish on it. And they would sacrifice the lamb, spill the blood, because that's how you forgave sins. You were restored to relationship with God. But if you notice, he says, you're bringing these blind, lamed, diseased animals. Why? That's what their relationship with God had become. It was just convenience. It was easier. We go to church. I put a little you know, money in, whatever. And it just reflected their attitude towards their father. The thrill was gone. What was once the greatest source of their joy in their life this vibrant, loving relationship with Abba had become mechanical. Worship was predictable and routine. Their heart wasn't in it anymore. Just kind of going through the motions. We get to go to church again. Oh, their worship was lame. 
If I could make an observation here, I've seen the same thing happen with many of us. Okay? Let's be honest. Israel was the old covenant church. We're the new covenant church. We're in the New Testament, and we're liquid specifically. We're a young church. We're only seven years old. But we have seen our Heavenly Father do some crazy things in the last seven years. Amen? We've grown from 300 to 3,000 people. We've, we baptized our thousandth person a few weeks ago. Four campuses, more to come. And yet, you know what? Some of us, let's be honest, have grown complacent. Eh, it's not an accusation. That's just an observation. Specifically, I have noticed that there's this kind of roller coaster of faith that many of you are on. If you're a Christian, I want you to think back to when you first became a believer. My guess is it started at the first tick where you kind of were convicted of your sin, right? You realized, hey, life on my own isn't working. I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn to God and say, God, you be my life. You had this hunger for God, next step up, to know him as your heavenly father, a hunger for God that was very palpable. And then out of that, you got saved. You trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins, to be your savior, fill me with the Holy Spirit, God, and then baptism, that's the high point of the roller coaster for many, right? Look at the faces of some of the folks who were baptized just a few weeks ago. Look at this. Look at them. Why do you think they're like that? This kid's like, man, I'm 12 years old. I'm forgiven. Woo! <laughs> this, she's like, I, I, me too. And then this, look at him. He's, he's like, I've been born again at my age. I'm born again, man. This is incredible. A new creation, life in Christ, filled with his spirit. It's exciting. That's the high point for most Christians. But then what happens is you get to the top and complacency sets in. You start, you know, trying to read the Bible and praying, but then something happens that leaves you disappointed. Maybe, maybe a spouse didn't live up to his or her vow. Or maybe you prayed for God to save your marriage and he didn't. Or you prayed that God would, would give you that job or heal that illness, and that didn't happen. Or I wanted to go to that school, and I thought that was God's will, and now I'm disappointed. And you, it's left you disillusioned. That's the next tick down. Disillusioned with church, with God, with his people. Maybe somebody in this church failed you. Maybe I failed you. <laughs> or another pastor or leader. You had expectations for how they would treat you, and then you got into some trouble, and they bailed, or, and you're like, so much for loving Jesus, whatever. And that hurt has you questioning, you know, what's the point of church anyway? Why bother? And you stop going, and now you feel distant from God. You feel disconnected. It bothered you at first. And you're like, I got to get back there. I'm, you know, maybe in the spring I'm going to get back there. But now, watch, spiritual apathy has set in. You actually don't care anymore. You don't feel it. Outside of an hour on Sunday, you actually don't think about it at all. Can I tell you? This is the most dangerous place to be at the bottom of the faith curve, spiritual apathy. Everybody grows complacent at some point in their journey with Jesus, but the danger is what happens when you give up and you just don't care anymore. You either stop showing up, and we have. I know there, I can see in my mind people and families who like were all in, you know, when we launched the campus and we were so excited and all of a sudden, where are they anymore, right? They stop showing up. Or worse, worse. You keep coming to church, but then you just kind of go through the motions and phone it in. <laughs> That's what Israel was doing in Malachi. They still attended worship services, but it wasn't out of this like heartfelt affection and devotion to God. It became this religious routine. The people had grown lax, kind of lazy in their worship, and it had grown very lame. Again, I'm so glad this is a problem in the ancient past, aren't you? I mean, can you imagine people today in the modern church just going through the motions of worship? Listen. Before you condemn people in Malachi's culture, let's take an honest look at our own. You can't stop it. 
It's coming to a town near you. It used to be called contemporary. Some call it relevant. We're so cool, we call it contempervent. Young, hip guy welcoming all with graffiti and cool glasses. I welcome everybody with arms wide open, revealing my tattoo so you know I have a past. Quirky transition to band. Invite everyone to stand. Let's do it. This is the song that everyone knows. It's the song that everyone knows. Oh, it cuts a little close to home, doesn't it? That cuts a little close to home. Oh, man. See, we like to pretend, right, that spiritual apathy, oh, that's a thing of the past. And, you know, at our church, no, things are happy as long as the service lasts an hour, okay? And they better play a song that I like. <laughs> the reality is we have the same spiritual crisis today that Malachi had in 430 B.C. It is all too possible for us to attend temple or church and become so familiar, so complacent that we just start going through the motions. This is the song that everyone knows from Star 99.1. <laughs> Cue the glow sticks. Woo, right? Listen, listen, listen. Listen to how Hebrews 13 describes biblical worship, not pop worship. Listen to biblical worship. Ready? Through Jesus, therefore... Let us continually offer to God a what? Say these words. A sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that what? Openly profess his name. In other words, true worship, biblical worship, costs you something. It's called a sacrifice of praise. But in the modern church, our tendency is to think worship is about our preferences, what makes me happy. Newsflash, worship is not for you. Did you know that? <laughs> Do you know that the songs that we sing actually on Sunday at your campus, in some respects, it doesn't matter if you like them, they're not for you. <laughs> they're actually not for our benefit. They're being sung to our Father. He's actually the one that we sing and we dance and we celebrate for out of gratitude. True worship isn't about a style of music, lights and glows, whatever. There's nothing wrong with having fun. That's one of our core values as church. Church is fun. We want to celebrate. But listen, if your relationship with God is dependent on an hour on Sunday to keep you engaged and entertained and happy, you eventually are going to lose interest and be disappointed. At some point, your relationship with God will grow apathetic because you fail to develop a substantive faith, a theology that moves beyond music and gets back to the heart of worship, the heart of it. That's what the Israelites were missing. They went to the temple. They recited their scriptures. They sang their songs. They slaughtered their animals, and they went through the motions. And church had become this religious routine instead of a heartfelt celebration of, of their intimate relationship with their Father in heaven. Can I ask, is that what worship is for you? What is worship for you? How do you know if you're going through the motions in worship? I actually wrote a top 10 list this week. Top 10 ways to know if you're going through the motions in worship. And I had all 10. I thought they were great. Tom was like, you got time for two. I'm going to give you the first one. You ready? You're going through the motions in worship. If you're tempted to raise your hand but worried you'll spill your latte. Okay, I see some of you, all right? Now, it's okay, I'm not judging you if you're a coffee lover. I like me some Starbucks before church, man, I get it. I love it, I'm glad you have, your coffee's always welcome here. But listen, 
I see a lot of people kind of get their coffee, and then they kind of slide in the back row, and then they do this one. Sit there with the arms crossed and cup held like this, and kind of, I'm watching this. Worship is a spectator sport. I'll see if I want to clap at something cool. They kind of do that, right? And it says, a sacrifice of praise, that lips that openly profess. Some of you never even just actually open your lips in worship. I, I watch you just like, mm, I make you feel a foot towel, I open my lips, any of that, okay? Especially guys, guys, can I just talk to men for a minute? I get it. I want to be cool, all right? We're stoic. We're like, man, I'm not going to act like a fool. I don't want to. Let me ask you something. What is your reaction when your team scores a touchdown, okay? What's your reaction when the Rangers win, right? It's like, woo! You know, you're slapping butts. You're like, man! You, you don't care. It's so over the top, your reaction, right? In the, in the stadium, right? Guys don't care. There's no filter. But now I'm in church. Whoa, easy, man. Listen, there is a reason biblical worship is called a sacrifice of praise because sometimes it costs you to open your mouth to honor God because he's your father, he's good, he's loving, and he deserves it. Amen? In fact, can we make a shout of praise right now? Let's hear it for your God. Let's hear it. All our campuses. Louder. I want to hear you. I don't hear nothing here. Oh, whoa. Good for you. Good. I was worried because I'm in Morristown right now. I know Nutley's loud. I hear this every week. They're like, man, they were hooting and hollering before we started playing. I don't know what's going on in Essex County, but Nutley has something in the water. I hope it's legal. That, um, I'm glad. Listen, you know you're going through the motions of worship. If you think about engagement, nah, I'm not going to. Or you're going through the motions of worship when the only scripture you read all week is on a slide, okay? Some of you, this is the only scripture that you're going to read all week. You're like, I come on Sunday, man, Tim, I want to get filled up. I want to eat something. But then you go into starvation Monday through Saturday because <laughs> you feel filled up here. And that's fine. I want to feed you here. But guess what? You got to become a self-feeder because your father has things he wants to tell you during the week, completely unrelated to what happens on Sunday. Did you know that? Like right now, if God is your father, how many of you would love to get a letter from your father saying, this is what I think of you. This is your next step in life. I'm coaching you. How many would love to get a phone call from your father? You actually have in your hands a letter from your father. <laughs> it's not mystery work. He writes it. Malachi is my messenger. It's your father's message to you. And he wants to speak to you, not just on Sundays, not just on a slide, but during your quiet time with him. If you've let that slip during the week or you've become complacent about your time with God, your father's like, I I've loved you. I'm calling you back. Come spend time with me. Not just on Sunday, but tomorrow morning. Because worship it's about more than a musical style. It's about a lifestyle. If church is just a speed bump on the weekend, why bother? That's what God actually says. Look at verse 10. God like throws up his hands. He's like, oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors. The spirit has left the building. <laughs> so that you would not light useless fires or glow sticks on my altar. <laughs> I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And I'll accept no offering from your hands. Because my name will be great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings, pure heart, will be brought to me. Because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it, saying what? The Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, ah, oh, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. Let me ask you, is worship a burden to you? Or is it actually a blessing? It's like a privilege. We get to come here and openly profess and lift up God's name and make much of Jesus. 
I wanted, I, let me just challenge you with this. If you're one of those kind of chronic latecomers to service, I was for most of my life. I, whatever time the service would start, I'd come 15 minutes late, okay? So that, that, if you come to 9 o'clock service, but you're like, dude, I come to the 9.15 service. You know what I mean? Okay, wink, wink. Because like, I, I want to miss, like, you know, whatever, the warm-up act. That's how you treat the worship. Like, the message is just, that's the, that's the meat. Let me challenge you. Arrive early for this, this whole music series. Believing in faith, God has something to speak to me. He wants to touch me in a very unique way here. And, I, and what this does is, guys, is it pushes back against this me-centered view in our world that says, you know what? Life is not about me. It's about my Father in heaven and making much of Jesus who gave his life, who, who, who sanctified and put the Holy Spirit in me, has plans for my life. And you know what? Even if I'm not feeling it at this moment, even if I'm tired this morning, even if I've sung this song a million times and I don't like it, that's my problem, not my father's. <laughs> listen to me, listen. Don't let what's wrong with you keep you from worshiping what's right with God. Amen? Don't let what's wrong with you keep you from worshiping what's right with God. Because God loves you like a father, he's actually not so concerned for your happiness as he is about your holiness. That you actually learn to praise him in good times and bad. And sometimes, you know what? The most powerful worship happens in a dark desert place. When you are hurting or you're disappointed or you're struggling in your faith and you said, I'm going to make a sacrifice of praise. It's going to cost me right now. Worship is not about a, a style of music. It's a lifestyle. It's saying, Father, my happiness is not dependent on happenings. My everything I need for everlasting joy is found right here in you, in you alone, and that's why I sing. That's why I do my happy dance. Not because I feel happy, but because you're making me holy by your blood. You've prepared a place for me in heaven. I have an eternal, eternal life. That's the secret. If you draw near to God, only when you feel happy, you'll inevitably be disappointed. But if you draw close to God and you say, Father, make me holy, guess what? Something amazing happens. As you grow in holiness, you get happiness as a byproduct. <laughs> if you go for happy, you won't be happy or holy for long. <laughs> but if you strive for holiness, a life of sacrifice and passion, poured out on the altar of Christ, God will make you holy and you will be happy. It's a bonus. That's the heart of worship. And I just say that today because I'm like, we all need that corrective from time to time, don't we? That's the, I'm, not, I'm not pointing fingers. This is me, okay? I'm a pastor. I was like reading this this way. I'm like, Malachi's writing to priests, the pastors. <laughs> And I had to inspect my own heart. I'm like, hmm, Tim, where am I kind of going through the motions in my relationship with God? Is it just preparing sermons? I do this. This is to feed you. I actually have my own devotional life. I'm reading through this amazing book right now that's about the father heart of God because I'm a father because I lost my father. Now I need my heavenly father to remind me of who I am. Where have you grown lax or lazy or made it about, you know, someone served me? Sacrifice has to cost something. Chapter 1 ends with God asking this question. He says, when you bring injured, lame, lame worship, <laughs> or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I'm a great king, says the Lord Almighty. In my name is to be what? Feared among the nations. Can I tell you what feared means? Feared means revered. Fear doesn't mean scared because he's going to strike me if I don't do it. I know that's how some of you hear that, right? 
You're like, there's like two gods in the Bible. There's like the Old Testament God, fear me. And then there's Jesus. I like Jesus, okay? The Old Testament God has anger issues, okay? I get it. He's always scaring people. I'm going to knock him down. No, 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 no. The fear of God, the fear of God simply means, it doesn't mean your fear of just him in a punitive way, but you are fearful of approaching him in so casual a relationship that you actually don't value it anymore. That spiritual apathy has set in your heart, and you're actually going to become so complacent you won't do anything about it. God says that's why we worship every week. It's about renewing sincerity of heart. And so if you're here today and you'd say, you know what, Tim, this is, this is hard truth because this is me. I look at that roller coaster, the faith curve, that's me. I'm the one on the downturn. My relationship with God was once strong and passionate and vibrant, but now I feel disillusioned and disconnected from God. Good news. <laughs> this is Malachi, meaning my messenger. This is your father's message to you. Come back. He sent the prophets to call his people back to the heart of worship. And so if you're here today and you're like, I have drifted away. My relationship with him is, is on the downturn. There are three things that God wants to say directly to you today, right here in Malachi. The first is, I have loved you. Look at verse 2. Those are God's words to you. The people said, how have you loved this? And you know what? The world's version of love is this schmaltzy, like, I love you, you love me. No. God's like, let me define love for you. Ready? This is love. Not that we loved God, but that what? He loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's love is not some schmaltzy, fuzzy-wuzzy, sentimental schmaltz. It is hard-edged. It is tough as nails. By sending Jesus, God dealt decisively with sin once and for all on the cross. When Jesus was sacrificed, it wiped our slate clean, gave a control alt, reboot to our heart. He put the Holy Spirit in us, and now we beginning living in love with the Father. Your father sent his son so you could be a son or a daughter. He said, I'm going to adopt you into my family through the sacrifice of Jesus. And so if you feel cold or distant from God this morning, he's saying to you, you know what? I have loved you. And the second thing he's saying is, I am your father. I realize that is a difficult truth for some of us to grasp. Because maybe your earthly father was distant or disconnected or worse, angry or abusive. He always set the emotional thermometer in the house. And you're like, that's... I, I, I believe truly for our generation, the enemy, his number one plan is to wound as many of God's children as possible through our earthly parents so that I can keep you cynical about my heart. I can keep you distrustful. Like maybe this is a conditional love. Like maybe because you, you sinned last night and some of you are like, I wasn't even going to come today because I figured God's angry with me. Because of Jesus, God doesn't love you any more or less through your actions. And that's liberating. It's not that God loves us because we obey. It's God loves us. That inspires me to obey. I'm free in Christ. Amen? God's my father. But some of you are disconnected from that because you're like, I, I just feel cut off from the grace of God. And this is a moment for you today. Just break that cycle. The father sent the son to break that slave mentality of fear. He hasn't given us a spirit of fear. As Romans 8 says, it says, the spirit you received... It doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. He's going to punish me. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your what? Adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. What's Abba mean? Daddy. 
It's not this formal term for some distant deity, but this intimate family term, daddy, my affectionate, loving papa. Listen, it's time for some of you to break that cycle of dysfunction and just receive the love of Abba today, okay? Listen, I want, in fact, let's just do this. Can we just do a little exercise here to prepare us? Just listen. Everyone close your eyes for just a minute, 30 seconds. Close your eyes, all our campuses. Close your eyes. And I, wanna, I want you to repeat these words after me. Father, you have loved me. Are you ready? On three. Ready? One, two, three. Father, you have loved me. Let's do this again. Ready? Father, you have loved me. Father, you have loved me. Father, you have loved us. We just acknowledge that right now in a supernatural way. Father God, would you pour out your supernatural love and affection into the lives of men and women, especially those of, those of us who have wounds that keep us, Lord. There's a ceiling on our faith. We can't break through. We need your Holy Spirit to break through. Would you pour out your affection and your grace into our heart right now that there is nothing we have done or can do to make you love us more or less because of Christ, you love us perfectly and fully. Father God, right now, stir that affection in our heart. Amen. Guys, you can open your eyes, guys. This is, this is the source of true happiness. This is true joy. When you know the love of the Father through the sacrifice of the Son, it, it takes away all fear. So listen, you may have backslidden, but this morning your father's saying, come home. You remember? When Jesus asked what the father like, he says, well, it's like a kid who kind of kicks his father, slaps the father in the face, takes his money, runs, goes, blows it in Vegas, and then he returns home, and what's the father's reaction? Hit him! He hugs him. He embraces the prodigal son, and he kisses him. He says, we have to have a celebration. My son's come home. But hasn't he insulted and offended? Yeah, but I made a sacrifice for that. Where? At the Lord's table. That is the third thing that God is inviting you today. It's in verse 7. In the Old Testament, the Lord's table was the altar on which you made a bloody sacrifice to be restored to God. In the New Testament, 400 years after Malachi, God said, I'm going to provide the ultimate sacrifice. Spotless, perfect, my son Jesus. John said, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so what we are going to do is we are going to celebrate the Lord's table today to culminate our worship. The New Testament, Christians believe what 1 Corinthians says. When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, would you throw this verse up there? This is powerful. Aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? You're about to share in the blood of Christ, which forgives all your sin. And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? When Jesus' body was broken on the cross, that was the punishment for our rebellion and sin. And now there's no more punishment. <laughs> Father says, come home, all of you. Come on, come home. Receive the Holy Spirit afresh today. And so we're going to celebrate communion. Communion just means coming into union with God. It's been broken, but we're going to come back into union. And so this is a communion for backsliders, okay? Because that's what many of us are. And if you're apathetic, this is a moment. Just confess your complacency. Ask the Father to reveal and restore your passion. Inspect yourself. Where have I grown lax or lazy or disillusioned or a little bit hardened to God? God says, I want you to come home. You have a place for you at my table today. Communion is remembering the love of the Father through the sacrifice of the Son. So let's do this. We're going to bow our heads in prayer, Liquid Church. I'll pray, and then I'll give you 30 seconds or so just to talk to your Father. 
And then your campus pastor will give instructions for communion. We'll use that time to reunite with God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Malachi. The reason you sent the prophets was to remind us of who we are. We're your people. More than your people, we're your church. More than your church, we're your children. And so, Father, we boldly approach your throne of grace. We approach the table. We receive communion and remember the blood and the body of Jesus, shed and broken for our sins.